is uh, review something that Nachman Braxler said, which I think is uh, very interesting. The beginning of the parasha, the parasha of the Chukotai, is the parasha of the Tochacha. Tochacha means that in the agreement between Bnei Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch you understand the end of the parasha, the end of the book of Vayikra could have been the introduction to Bnei Yisrael going into Eretz Yisrael. It's true that Bamidbar Naso, Bahalotcha, are sort of like organizing things for the trek in the desert. But that trek would have been ended right with those parashiyot, except that shlach, Bamidbar Naso, Bahalotcha, they taught me in high school, I remember, Ben Basak. If you remember that, you know the order of the parashiyot. Bamidbar Naso, Bahalotcha, Shlach, Korach. Shlach is the parish of the Meraglim. The parish of Meraglim changes Jewish history because it introduces a 40-year sojourn in the desert. If not for the parish of Shlach, they would have come into Eretz Yisrael pretty much after this parashah B'chukotai. So the parashah B'chukotai contains the new covenant, a different kind of covenant. Har Sinai was also a covenant. And the covenant with Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov were also a covenant. But now there's a, another kind of covenant. Not another kind, but a, different kinds of details. And this covenant says, in right, the first psukim in the parasha, good things are going to happen to you. And if you don't follow the laws of the Torah, bad things are going to happen to you. And the bad things are enumerated. They are enumerated. And it would seem that this covenant in the parashah of B'chukotai is cancelled by the Meraglim. It's cancelled by the act of the Meraglim. And then that's why 40 years later, 38 years later, in the parashah of Kitavo, remember the end of the Torah, the end of Dvarim, the parasha of Kitavo, there's another covenant. Not simply a restatement of the old covenant, because it's a little bit different, but you understand that that covenant was reestablished on the eve of Bnei Yisrael going into Eretz Yisrael. So that Bigadol, as they like to say in Israel, right, and uh, if you look at it in the macro, if you look at the macro of the Torah, so you have the stories of the formation of Am Yisrael, Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the building of the Mishkan, uh, all the things associated with the Mishkan, like Tumah, Torah, what you can eat, what you can't eat, what you can't sacrifice, you can't sacrifice, and finally, now you're ready to go to Eretz Yisrael, the end of Ayikra, our parasha, covenant. And then there's a regression in history, the parasha of Shlach, and then the stories that happened in the Midbar during the 38 years. It's not a, not a history, but there are a few stories that are chosen in the book of Bamidbar. The book of Dvarim <coughs> is a book that was written about the last days of the life of Moshe Rabbeinu, in which he repeats certain mitzvot, adds other mitzvot, talks about 
the new obligations of Bnei Yisrael have when they come to Eretz Yisrael, and a new covenant, which is similar to the old covenant, not identical, similar to it, but again, re-establishment, establishing the relationship between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Am Yisrael on the eve of the entry into Eretz Yisrael. And finally, they do. They do achieve. They are able to enter. They are able to go into Eretz Yisrael, something that, uh, uh, that they missed out on. It's like two times. They did it twice. So that the promise was resilient. The promise to Avram Avinu was so resilient that even after B'nai Yisrael rejected it, rejected the promise. Right, you know, the, the, the story, you could look at the story of the Torah as a story of rejection. You know, B'nai Yisrael rejected the Torah by building the Egel Azahar. Okay, you could say it wasn't a total rejection, it was a partial rejection, but it's primarily the story of the failure of Mitzrayim, of the slavery and the exodus of Mitzrayim to produce the worthy result. The worthy result, the Gemara said, would be to start over again. That the Am Yisrael standing at Har Sinai should have been like Adam and Chava, so the Gemara says, in Gan Eden. Which means a brand, a really a new beginning. Everything starts over again. But B'nai Yisrael Warren wasn't up to it. So even if you know that God will forgive you or accept your repentance or, or uh, allow you atonement, if you, you know for sure that's going to happen. It doesn't mean that you're up to it. It doesn't mean you're going to do it, that, that you can really do it. So that was the Torah, the rejection of the Torah and continued rejection of Moshe Rabbeinu in the years in the desert which also was a rejection of Torah, because Torah could only exist if you accept the authority of the representatives of the Torah. Otherwise, otherwise you don't have a Torah, because uh, the Torah can't breathe. Even though, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's common sometimes for from people to say that the Torah never changes. Uh, they don't mean that. The Torah has to change because the Torah has to be relevant all the time. It has to respond to, um, to reality. If it can't respond to reality, it's going to disappear right away. So when you say that the Torah doesn't change, you mean that there's an essential Torah, and, that, and around that essential Torah, there are things changing all the time. All the time. The Rambam says, when God gave the Torah to, uh, to Moshe Rabbeinu, and Moshe Rabbeinu had to teach the Torah to the generations, but that included takanot and minhagim and gizerot, you know those words that are used for rabbinic innovation, right? Rabbinic innovation could not mean let's do away with Shabbat and do something else, but it could mean let's accept new kinds of regulations and obligations which are appropriate for the generation in which we live. Also leniencies, even though it's true that, that, that uh, being religious is a very conservative enterprise. You know, we're very, always very nostalgic about the previous, the previous uh, generation. I once, uh, and I once asked Shlomo Kalva, I said, how come you never did anything? It's my, uh, my impression, this is what I said. So if I'm wrong, don't correct me. 
I said, how come you're like so modern and with it? You never did anything. You never said, let's do something. Some, something the other people go to. He says, you never said that. So he said, he says, I want to know. That's why I talked about Mechitza. That's what the topic. It was a Mechitza, the shul, he was dabbling and the sukkahs in his father's shul on 79th Street in Manhattan. It was a shul, a small shul. And there was a big Mechitza. And you know, a lot of girls there, they all like try to get across the Mechitza to the other side to see what's really going on. Of course, it's uh, terrible when they find out there's nothing going on. But, but so I said, how come you didn't uh, do something like take down the Mechitza or something or like make it more liberal? He said, he said, I want to make sure that if the bubble of a red bee comes to Dabin in my shoe, that he'll stay. You know, so, so I said, there's an innate conservatism that we have. If even if you think this is all right and that's all right and the other thing's all right, you want to make sure your grandparents would be happy about dabbling in the shoe. That's like part of the, the nature of, of our enterprise. Um, all right. So B'nai Yisrael in the desert were failing and succeeding and failing and succeeding, right? The, the Kabbalistic notion behind that is right. So the show. That's how people are. They do good things and then they regress. They, they move on and they regress in a Hegelian sort of way. The idea is always to be moving a few centimeters ahead. Like the big splurt is not as important as the difference between what used to be and what is now. In between, you can have all kinds of, uh, <coughs> you know, I saw, I saw somebody, I don't know why I'm doing this, somebody showed me that uh, some magazine, I looked forward, had the 50 most influential rabbis in America, had a list. I was so happy that I didn't know any of them. <laughs> so, but, but I said, to me, there's like a thousand rabbis in America who are not influential. I felt that was sad, right? I mean, how could you have so many rabbis who don't influence anything? But this is a problem, like you're dealing with a, an amorphous organism called the Jewish people, and they, everybody has ideas, everybody has their own ideas, everybody thinks they're right, everybody knows what the best thing for everybody else would be. And uh, this creates a, a difficulty. That's the same thing happened in the desert. We accepted that tradition. So let's go again. I just want to remind you, in Bechukotai, there's a covenant. That covenant was the covenant of Zetavadei Israel before they were supposed to enter Eretz Israel. They didn't enter Eretz Israel. The Baraglim, the punishment, the 38 years wandering around in the desert, all of that took place at the beginning of the, of the book of Bamidbar. And canceled out the uh, and canceled out the covenant. Now, in this canceled covenant, there's an interesting point that God makes. If you look at the sheet, right, the first statement, but pasuk gimel. Forget about Aleph and Bet. The parasha begins in pasuk gimel. It says, the laws and and uh, make the. Uh, 
That's what the it, it, that's what it says. Pasuk Gimel in the Rashi. See, sort of halfway, the second or the first wide line in the Rashi. Could this mean that you should keep the mitzvot? The second half of the Pasuk says mitzvot So the first part of the Pasuk must be talking about something else. Can't be talking about mitzvot. So if you have a mikraot kedolot at home, you take out your mikraot kedolot and you look at the perush of the orachayim of this patsuk, and you'll see that it stretches in the mikraot kedolot for six pages. What is it that the that the orachayim is explaining to us? What Amelim Batora means. And interestingly enough, in my, in my opinion, this became the linchpin of the ideology developed by B'nai Yisrael in the Middle Ages. Right? Of course, it was started by the Tanaim after the Churban Beit HaMikdash, but it was expanded and enhanced by the Rishonim at the time of Rashi, Right, and later than Rashi, Abe Limba Torah. Abe Limba Torah, if I look at the, here I look here. This is Art Scroll I'm looking at. Uh, and you should study them, and you should observe them to perform them. No, Amenat. Three. And you should study them. You should observe them to perform them. So that this idea of being a melimba Torah, to work hard, to, to work at Torah learning, this was an idea. This was an idea. In, in other words, the reasonable proposition is that if you are able to do it, you should do it. If you're talented at it, then you should kind of become a rabbinic personality. Instead, we developed this very interesting ideology that learning Torah is its own, doesn't have to be defended. In every, in every field, in every field, there's a system by which people who are not appropriate are weeded out. You, you, can't, you can't study math if you can't do the math problems. Right? You, you can't it doesn't work out. So how do they, how do they do at the university? They try to keep you in for the BA, so you'll see you'll pay tuition, but then they get rid of you when the when the universities start having to give scholarships. So then they only give to excellence. When you pay tuition, they figure out a way to keep you going uh, for the BA. So Torah learning is the opposite. The people who are really brilliant, we're not worried about because they take care of themselves. It's all the other people. How do we keep them doing it? Even though they really are not so extraordinarily talented. This became the educational linchpin of the Jewish people. Right? And today, today people, they keep doing it. They keep doing it even today. I mean, there are, uh, today they're developing shibot. For kids who have a little attention span, <coughs> kids who take, take Ritalin uh, every day, 
But that, that, it doesn't matter what's wrong with you. Just stay in yeshiva and learn Torah. But this kind of idea, which is, which is uh, anybody, you go on the street to find some non-Jewish educator will tell you in a minute that this is madness. And all of this madness goes into this Rashi, that you have to be Amelimba Torah. It has nothing to do with whether you're successful or not. I mean, everybody can be a little bit successful, but usually, usually in most areas, people who are not really cut out for it leave, leave the field. They don't study things just because they're there. They can't do it. They can't maintain that kind of standard. So this idea of Torah became the ideological watchword. That's what we want. We're, we're not worried about the geniuses. We're not worried about whether they'll be Hoskim uh, uh, or Dayanim or people of, of great uh, competence because they don't need us. Us meaning <coughs> the system of education. They'll educate themselves. Right? They take care they take care of themselves. Uh, listen to, if you don't listen to great people, great Jews, great Torah scholars, you find none of them ever went to yeshiva. They all sat at home and learned with their fathers or sat in the backyard and learned by themselves. They didn't go to yeshiva. They didn't go to yeshiva. The Chazanish didn't go to yeshiva and Rabbi Yashuk didn't go to yeshiva. And, uh, and if they went to yeshiva, they had nothing to do with the yeshiva either. They, they did it all. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein didn't go to yeshiva. You didn't do any yeshiva. Yeshiva is for, for regular people. Some quite smart, right? Clever. But the, really, the ones who are outstanding, they just sit down, put them in, give a Gemara, and sit them down someplace, and they do it themselves. I remember when this, uh, this uh, Russian, I mean, I know his name, I don't know if I should tell you, say his name. Anyway, it's Russian mathematician, came to, to the yeshiva where I was. Uh, he didn't know anything. You know Russians? Like, they don't know anything. They really don't know anything. So he didn't know a thing. So I said, well, we're going to learn good. He says, oh, well, I said, what do you want to do? Let's learn. Learn Gemara. Okay, somebody talked him into it. So, um, so we started learning Gemara. Whatever Gemara we were learning, I, I read it and explained it to him. Then I said, okay, now read it back to me and explain it to me. So he reads back the Gemara. And I see that his reading is better than my reading. Like, he didn't know anything. But he got it. So I took him, I put him in a corner in the yeshiva, in the base measure, put him in a corner. I said, don't talk to anybody. Don't let anybody bother you. Don't go ahead, don't leave your seat. And he did that. And now he knows Shas, and is a big time of and I take all the credit. <laughs> because I didn't make him go to yeshiva. <laughs> like, like, that would be really awful and spent all this time figuring out what was wrong with what he was taught. That would be a big waste of time. So in any event, I mean, this Amelut Torah is the ideology. That's what it's about. How it became the ideology, you know, you could discuss aspects of it, but that's the ideology. Now, the, then the, the Torah goes on, we did Pasuk Gimel, the Latafik can be done, <laughs> so things are going to be great. The land will produce and you'll have uh, uh, tremendous opportunities 
and uh, it, it'll just be great, an economic miracle. It'll be an economic miracle. Then the pasuk that I'm particularly interested in is pasuk what? Benatati shalom ba'aretz ushchaftem ve'ein macharid mishpati chayera abin ha'aretz v'cherem lo tavro ba'atzakat. The first phrase is benatati shalom ba'aretz. I will give you peace. Or I will eject or place peace into this land. So now, if you look at the Rashi of Pasuk Vav, you look at the Rashi of Pasuk Vav, the Rashi says, Vatati Shalom, you see the Rashi? Shema Tomru, Harema Chav, Harema Mishteh. says, you come and say, what do I need Shalom for? I've got a lot of food, and I've got a lot of drink, and I've got a lot of money, and I'm doing a tremendous business, and I'm conquering the world in all of this. So you say, Im ein shalom, ein klum. Im ein shalom, ein klum. That's what Raja said. The other piece, you don't have anything. Well, what, what do you mean you don't have anything? Huh? Talmud Lomar. After you have economic well-being, v'natati shalom ba'aret. Mikan. From this we learn, shalom shakul kineged akol. So what, what, what is he? What is Rashi talking about? What do you mean shalom? What do you mean shalom? If you have power, and you have economic power, and if you have industrial power, and you have a strong army. Uh, what do you need peace for, right? This is our ideology today in, in Israel, in Eretz Israel. As long as we can beat up on everybody in sight, what difference does it make? And the Pasuk says, the Pasuk says, no. There's a quality called Shalom which supersedes everything else that you might have. And if you don't have Shalom, you don't really have everything. Because everything is precarious. And things change all the time. And if there's no peace, the change might work against you. That's what, that's what Rashi says. Now, this pasuk, <coughs> this pasuk remains problematic. Because even though Rashi said what Rashi says, it's not easy for us to understand what exactly the difference is between a nation that is at peace and a nation that is not at peace, as long as you're very successful and have what you want. The Ibn Ezra, you see the second paragraph, I can't read the whole thing, but the Ibn Ezra says, Venatati shalom ba'aretz beinechem. So the Ibn Ezra says, no, we're not talking about international relations, as Rashi seems to, to indicate. Beinechem, no Jews, they don't get along, that's the nature of the, of the game. So Venatati shalom, what supersedes economic well-being and industrial independence and, and having a, a, a special place in the world because of your military capacity, what you're going to get is people are going to like each other. Shalom beinechem. Can you imagine that? People will get along with each other. Right? I don't want to mention the Ethiopian problem in Israel, but I don't have to mention it. The Ramban says, Benatati Shalom Ba'aretz, you see the Ramban, the next, uh, so in the third line, the third line it says, Al Derech HaEmet, Al Derech HaEmet, Emet is Kabbalah. 
right? In other words, there's another way of thinking about it. Not like Rashi, and not like the Ibn Ezra. So the third line, Rashi, uh, the Rabban says, Aderech HaEmet, Sheyitein HaShalom Mechubar Ba'aretz. What do you think of that? Netati Shalom Ba'aretz literally means peace in the land. Ramban says, what does that mean? That Eretz Yisrael will become kind of connected to peace. That, that the only way to live in Eretz Yisrael would be if you are at peace. So it's not that you get de facto peace, but you get a situation in which only peace can be winning. You can only live in Eretz Yisrael if you're willing to accept the notion of peace. If you're not, and peace is connected to Eretz Yisrael, so naturally, whoever doesn't accept that won't be able to live in Eretz Yisrael. So according to the Ramban, just like there's a pasuk in Achremot and a pasuk in Kedoshim, right, those two parashiyot in Vayikra, where it says, if you don't keep the Torah, the land will spoo you forth. In other words, the land itself can't put up with certain kinds of idolatry and, and, and sexual uh, misdemeanors. And if, if the people engage in that kind of activity, then the land won't put up with it. And what does the Ramban say here? The Ramban says, if you can't accept the idea of peace, the land won't be able to live up and live with you. So that there's a, like you run in, there's a time you have to conquer the land and take it over. But then you better make peace. Because if you don't make peace with each other, then the land won't be able to hold, hold on to you. So these are different opinions about this pasuk. Right? I'm skipping all of this and I'm going to get to Rav Nachman. I want to get to Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman, uh, introduction. Introduction to Rav Nachman. I'm going to teach you a little bit of... of uh, Part A, uh, Torah, Sabbath, Dalit, 64, paragraph Dalit. That's what's on the end of this page. Now, this is what Rav Nachman was, well, the way I present it. The question is this. How come everything in the Gemara is a machloket? I'll say that again. <laughs> How come everything in the Gemara is a machloket? One Tana said this. Another Tana said that. One Amora said this, another Amora said that, and the Gemara spends a lot of time, all its time, trying to explain the Machloket away, resolve the Machloket. Now the Rambam, who lived many years before Rav Nachman, the Rambam said that when God gave the Torah to Moshe Rabbeinu, there was only one Torah. There was no Machloket. So what happened? Well, where did this machloket come from? So the Rambam says, you know, Am Yisrael had tough times. They went into exile. They set up a bed in here, set up a bed in there. These didn't know what those were doing, and those didn't know what these are doing. So as a result, as a result, you have disparity. But the Rambam said, we could still get back to the source, to the kernel, to the one. And therefore he wrote his book, which he called Mishneh Torah, Mishneh Torah, the kind of second Torah, and which, uh, which we call, he called it Mishneh Torah, we call it Yad Chazakah, Yad Yud Dalet, 
because he divided the halacha into 14 books. We call it Yad HaChazakah. In that book, the Rambam tells you what the halacha is. He doesn't tell you what the machloket is. Because the Rambam was committed to the idea, the Rambam, Maimonides, was committed to the idea that you could discover the truth. You know, when the Beit Yosef, Rav Yosef Kara wrote the Shulchan Aruch, I see I'm not going to make it, but when, the, when uh, Rav Yosef Kara wrote the Shulchan Aruch, he based it on, he based it on what the Rosh wrote and what the, the Tour wrote and what the uh, Rosh and the Tour and the Ramam, thank you. Well, what do you mean he based it two out of three? Is that crazy? Be two out of three? You have three giants of halakha. And then you say, what's the, what, what do you do in this case? But you say, well, we'll just count them. Two against one is going to win. Now, that's something that a child could do. That's not something that Yosef Karim should do. Yosef Karim should be able to analyze. So what Yosef Karim said was, I can't analyze to the truth. So I have to figure out an arbitrary way of getting to the truth. And therefore, two against one is going to win. That's what Joseph Karo said. That's what we do. We, to this day, follow that principle. That two against one wins in the context of halakha. Context of halakha. Along came, came uh, <coughs> Rav Nachmada Bratzl. And Rav Nachmada Bratzl said this. First of all, he said, I accept the position of the Arizal. Ari. Remember the Ari? No. The Arizal was born in Yerushalayim and his mother was widowed and could not support her family. So they went to Alexandria where she had a rich relative who took them in. In Alexandria, the Arizal studied his Chavrusa was the man who wrote or compiled the Shittah Mekubetzeh which is a compendium of statements by Rishonim on certain Masechot of Shas. Very important. It's a very important uh, uh, work. His name was Bitzalel Ashkenazi. Both of them, and Bitzalel Ashkenazi mentions the Arizal several times in his work called the Shittim Kubetzim. They both had a teacher who we call the Radvaz, Rav David Ben Zimra who taught them both Gemara and Kabbalah. Eventually, the Arizal left Alexandria and went to Tzfat. He was in Tzfat for a very short time, but somehow made this tremendous impression on the Kabbalists of Tzfat. And he became the leading light of Kabbalism coming out of Tzfat, even though there was another great Kabbalist there, Moshe Kodavir, who, uh, so they shared the titles of them. The Arizal asked himself the following question. He said, how could it be that God created, or how was it when God created the world? After all, God took up all the room. Like every place was God. So where exactly did God put the world that he created. So the Arizal said, God 
created a halal hapanui, an open, empty space. Like you imagine like water or air, just moved it away and created a halal panui, an empty space. And into that empty space, God created the world. The Ramban says, Ramban says, I know that this is, uh, if you don't know, what, if you ever heard this story, it may be a little bit much, but I, I don't think I could do it any other way. The Ramban said that God, into this halal panui, God created something yesh something from nothing. And then everything else that was created was created from the something that originally was created from nothing. And that something that was created from nothing is called the Yuli in the Ramban, which is a Greek word, which means primal, primal matter or something like that. <coughs> that Chalala Panui has this strange distinction of being a place where there is no God. So here you have Rav Nachman, and he says, what's going on here? How is it possible that God created the world in a place where there's no God? What am I supposed to do? I'm not supposed to be with God. So Rav Nachman developed this interesting, this interesting uh, uh, idea based on the Zohar, that when I say that there's no God in the Halala Panui, I don't mean that there's no God, I mean it's just hard to perceive. It's hard to get to God. And therefore, Rav Nachman answered the question which he asked himself. He said, how could it be that there are people who don't believe in God? When Rav Nachman came to Uman, you know Uman, where you could fly for an exorbitant rate today, and, and you do and eat uh, sandwiches or something, and Rav Nachman said, Rav Nachman, uh, when he got to Uman, in Uman there were well-known like conservative Jews. You know, the Jews who wanted to change things, Jews who wanted to make it. So he, Rav Nachman, used to go every day and play chess with one of these guys on the back porch of his house. And the Hasidim, I don't know how many Hasidim there were, probably not too many, but the Hasidim got nervous. They said, this is a Rebbe? This is what a Rebbe does? He spends all his time playing chess with a non-religious Jew? This is terrible. So they asked Rav Nachman, what are you doing? And so he said, according to the story that I was told, he said, I'm trying to figure out how a person can imagine that he doesn't have a father or a mother. Which is the way he said, how could a person imagine that nobody created the world? Or that the world was not created? Because he, he couldn't understand it. But then he came across this idea of the Chalala Pernur. <coughs> We're going to get to Shalom. It'll just be another couple of minutes. <laughs> Don't worry. He said, he said uh, uh, how, how could it be that people don't think, think they don't have a, a father and a mother? They say, ah, they're in the Chalala Panui. In order to create the world, God had to kind of make this Chalala Panui. So what is a Chalala Panui? It's a place where the availability of the idea of God is not so obvious. It's possible to be trapped in the Chalala Panui. That's why Rav Nachman said, Kola Olam Kulo, you know that song? Kola Olam Kulo Gesher Tsar Me'od. Vaikar Lo That's what Rav Nachman said. That when you go through the world, when you go through life in the world, 
What's the gesher? What's the, the bridge that is that very narrow bridge? It's a place where you still are holding on to God, to the idea that God is with you. Because if you fear, if you are consumed by fear, you might fall off of the bridge. When you fall off of the bridge, where do you fall? You fall into the halal hapanui. So Rav Nachman explained, Rav Nachman explained on the one hand, that we are really a faith-based religion. By that I mean that there are, the way we connect to God is through faith. We believe that there is a God. We don't prove that there is a God. We can't answer the questions that are asked by questioners about, about God. We don't know the answer to those questions, but we know because we have that faith that there is a God and that God is concerned about us. That's how we know. We don't know any other way. There's no logical position that can be defended. Okay, right? I mean, if you studied philosophy, you know that there have been attempts, and, and, but, but this is Rav Nachman. And therefore, Rav Nachman didn't like the Rambam. He didn't like the Rambam, but he really didn't like the Rambam. He said you shouldn't study any of the books of the Rambam because he thought that the Rambam misleads us into thinking that you can figure it out. And Rav Nachman said you can't figure it out. Why did he say you can't figure it out? Because he used Rav, the Arizal's principle of the Halal Panui. That if God took himself, so to speak, out of, out of something, how can we say that he's there? There you have it. So the Rav, Rav Nachman said this. Rav Nachman said this. In the, if you are in the world, so you're in the Halal Panui. So even though your faith enables you to say that God is concerned about us and that we fear God and love God, even though we don't always get it, Right, that you could say all of that. That's true about Torah as well. It's true about Torah. There is a pure Torah. There is a singularity of Torah. I use that word liberally. Uh, it's a word in physics. Physicists like that. But I'm using it in a liberal way. There's a singularity of Torah. Don't like singularities. Okay. There's a singularity. <laughs> okay. That's, that's the difference between being in, in it and not being in it, right? But, but there's a singularity to Torah. It's just that we don't know it. We don't get it. Because we're the Halal Panui. And therefore, when the Torah is given to Moshe Rabbeinu, what happened? Moshe Rabbeinu, they had gotten it. But then it automatically turned into a machloket. It turned into, into a difference of opinion. Because nobody could see the whole truth. No one could see the singularity of the Torah on any position. And therefore you have machloket, they have the machloket, they have the machloket. So along came Rav Nachman and he said, he didn't quote the Pasuk, I'm adding it, that when shalom ba'aretz means that the hope is that there won't be a machloket. That the hope is that if we are accepting of the covenant and we're able, and we're able to follow uh, the directives of the Torah and yearn to get it right, that we will be able to get it right. And that's what shalom is. 
That's what shalom is. It's doing away, according to Rav Nachman, doing away with the machloket. There's no machloket. This machloket is based on the fact that we don't get it right, that we don't see it. But when did we get it right? Not what the Rambam says, that once we got it right, and then there were wars and there were exiles and things happened, and so things are a little messed up. No, no. Rav Nachman says in the essence of Kabbalah Torah, it's all the shulis, right? And the essence of the, we have to recognize the fact, we have to recognize the fact that we don't get it perfectly right. That in the, in the, that our receptors are not able to see the truth in the Chalala Panui. And what we wait for is for God to miraculously show us the way. And that's called Vedatati Shalom Ma'aretz. Okay. Next week, Bamidbar. Be well.